All right, here we are. Welcome to the Friday live stream. This is a Q&A where I try to give you biblical answers to your questions. And the first question we have on board today, I remember the counter today, by the way, is from David Tagawa, who tried to ask a question last week and I accidentally skipped one. Just my mistake. Oops, I'm sorry, David. So we're taking yours as the first question this week, which is, hi, Pastor Mike. Do you think that the now famous question, what is a woman, is a relevant area of focus for biblical Christians? Doesn't the gospel naturally address address these issues we face? Now, those are two different questions you're asking. One is, is it a relevant area for Christians to focus on? And whether it, maybe we'll say it is a relevant area, maybe we'll say it isn't. But either way, you're asking another question. Hey, doesn't the gospel automatically address those things? And that's a tricky one. So we're going to talk about this. Um, let me first suggest this, that the, the framing of your question, David, and the way that it's presented by many online uh, and in person is a way of controlling what kinds of speech are considered godly or appropriate for someone who's representing Christ in the world. Now, there's a good issue here. Like, I do want to think about what, you know, how I represent Christ in the world, the way that I use humor, the way that I use language, the way that I talk about issues, the sort of sides I take. I do want to care about how that represents Christ in the world. But here's a question. Am I primarily concerned about how what I say... Um, increases people's willingness to receive other important things about Christianity? Or am I concerned primarily about how what I say represents Christ accurately and truthfully? And these can be conflicting concerns because I can say things that represent Jesus accurately and truthfully, which close doors to people and make them shut down and they won't listen to me on the gospel. But if I filter everything through the lens of, I want to build bridges, build bridges, I may actually have to misrepresent Christ and the truth of him in order to build those bridges. Now, on the other hand, I don't want to go overboard with this, this, this criticism on this sort of um, uh, policing of what Christians are allowed to talk about in public. I don't want to go overboard on it because it's true that there are some issues. It's like, you know, why are we, why are we debating that? That's not really a good issue to debate right now. It's kind of just burning bridges and not really building them. There's a time to say that. The question you have is, how does that apply to this issue of this what is a woman thing? So Matt Walsh came out with a documentary recently called What is a Woman? I know that your question is related to that. And um, and that was the, the the Supreme Court justice who was asked the same question, what's a woman? And she's like, I don't know. I can't say. I'm not a biologist, which was funny on two counts because on one count, yes, you do know what a woman is. You refuse to say it for political reasons and, and other reasons. And two, she affirmed that what a woman is is based on biology, <laughs> which was like a big oops because you don't want to say that with the with the liberal perspective on these things right now, the extreme liberal perspective. Uh, obviously, not all liberals hold it, but enough do that it that it's the liberal perspective. So, you know, is it something that we should say? Um, well, the first thing I'm going to say is I don't want to control what every Christian can talk about. I don't want to be the guy making rules for what you as a Christian are allowed to talk about. I get this all the time in my videos where people comment, Mike, just stick to the gospel. Like I'm doing a series on women in ministry. Mike, just stick to the gospel, man. What's wrong with you? You know, you're, and, and there's like these sort of rebuttals to not what I'm saying about an issue, but literally just rebutting the fact that I'm discussing a topic at all. And for those of you in the audience who are like, Mike, I don't think you should talk about this. I don't think you should talk about that. I just want to say, you're like, you're a very oppressive person. <laughs> like you, you literally want to go around and tell everybody what they're allowed to talk about. It just, I just imagine it being difficult to be around that sort of attitude. Let me just say that's going to burn bridges towards Christianity. just as much as anything else you think might burn bridges because you're going around telling believers what they're allowed to discuss. Like, I don't know. I, I think that's a weird thing and it doesn't seem biblical. 
So Jesus, when he went into, let's look at the examples in scripture, right? Jesus, when he goes into the, the Jewish communities, because he, everywhere he went was Jewish communities for the vast majority of his, of his ministry time. You know, there was, he was in Samaria. He had individual conversations with Gentiles, but, but uh, not really in their communities exactly. At least we have no data for that. When he went up to more of the, the, the Gentile areas, we don't really have a lot of information about what happened there. So Jesus, when he went into the Jewish communities, he targets not just, hey guys, I'm the Messiah. I'm here to live, to die and rise to cover for your sins so that you can be forgiven. He does not limit himself to that topic. Interesting, isn't it? Like, think about the stuff he did. He went into and he's like, woe to you Pharisees. And he rips on these leaders because of a bunch of issues like the way they tithe, the way that they, the way they do their phylacteries. Now, phylacteries are still a current Orthodox Jewish practice, practice right? Where you, uh, you have like a little box and it's not, it's not meant to be mocked. And Jesus wasn't mocking it, by the way. He's mocking the way they did it. But they have a little box and there's scripture in it and you tie it around your head as part of a ritual during prayer. He mocked them because they were making them as big as they could to look better in front of others. Now, you could easily be someone on the internet going, Jesus, I think you're burning bridges with those people. And they're not going to believe in your gospel message if you keep mocking them for the way that they dress. Ah, but he did He did do that. Like He was like, hey, you know, you make the tassels of your garment extra long. You know, um, You're doing all these things for outward righteousness. Because Jesus saw that there was a heart issue behind these secondary tertiary topics like phylacteries, the, the tassel length on a garment, the the fact that they were tithing mint and cumin, which he wasn't mocking them for that either. He was saying, you're careful about tithing mint and cumin, even little spices, you're tithing percentages of that for the Jewish context. Tithing is not a Christian demand. Um, and then he um, uh, you know, goes on to use that as to say, but you're not actually giving God all of your heart. right? So what he's doing is he's pointing out issues that are connected to, to deep and important topics. Now, I think this what is a woman thing is like that. Now, Paul did this too. He, you know, he went to Gentiles and he talked to them about all kinds of moral reform in their lives. He preached to them that all men everywhere should repent and believe in Jesus. But that word repent carried a lot of weight and connotations with it, like change your bad attitudes and actions towards God, towards each other. You have idols, you have false worship, you have pagan practices. I want you to stop all that. So the gospel went out and it wasn't like this sort of carefully guarded, protected topic in the New Testament, where the gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus and believing in him and the um, the other stuff that's Christian, that's true, that Jesus would ask of you, we won't tell you any of that. We'll just sort of hope it's sort of through osmosis, you just sort of get it. Now, it's true that sometimes that happens, but I just want to say this. I think that that modern idea of osmosis discipleship, while it can happen, and it does happen on occasion, it is not the biblical model. So I'm not saying it can never take place, but it's not the biblical model. That kind of thing where you go out and you just preach on one or two topics and you never mention anything else because you don't want to burn bridges. That's not really my biblical example. And so I want to keep things in proper perspective, but here's why I think this what is a woman thing is a fantastic thing for us to talk about and address in our modern culture today. First off, as a Christian, when you bring up the topic of what is a woman or you, you want to talk about the nature of gender, this is a super relevant issue. And it is not being pushed by by the churches. It is not being pushed by Christians. It's being pushed by extreme left-wing individuals and progressive individuals. This is the way, it, this is the reality of the world we live in, right? Now, I don't want to burn bridges. Some of you are progressives and you watch me. And I want to say is, in your camp, there is a degree of insanity <laughs> that I think we have to address that you need to like shake yourself awake with on this topic. 
this issue of gender is massive and it's being pushed by a um, a culture changing movement within the real more left wing uh, you know progressive both spiritual progressive and political progressive groups this is this is reality that we live in they're pushing this agenda as hard and fast as they can so that it becomes an issue that we're addressing because when Paul walked into an environment there were a bunch of idols he addressed idols you know when Jesus walked into religious hypocrisy he addressed religious hypocrisy why he addressed the issues that were being that were affecting the people of the time i think as christians this is the thing i walk into an environment and when i evangelize i don't ignore the most blatant lies and sins that are pervasive in that culture i target them that seems to be the biblical example all the all the apostles did this it seems to me but also the prophets go through the old testament look at the prophets they target exactly the hot button sin issues that, are, that people are choosing instead of God. And this gender issue is related to that. It is related to that. Okay, so in my opinion, uh, I believe it's related. And I think that, I think that it doesn't take, it's not that hard to see how it's related. So for one thing, it's, I'll give you a few specific reasons. Um, yeah, it's like crackle in the audio. Yeah, I was, man, I was troubleshooting this crackle in the audio thing. I just got a new audio setup, just so you guys know. Sorry, if take two seconds to explain this. Trying a new system. Audio crackle. I, I don't know what's causing it. If one of you know, don't guess. Please don't send me messages of a guess of what you think. Oh, maybe. If one of you actually knows what this crackle might be, please send it to me. Um, I don't know what it is, and I've tried. I, I just added a new DBX system. For those of you who are informed, I have an RE20 microphone going through a cloud lifter into the DBX286S into a, a Audient ID4 preamp. Um, but I really just That's just being used as an interface, and then it goes into the computer. Okay. For the for the tech people, <laughs> you can help me with that. I appreciate it. I can't figure out what's causing it. Spent like two hours troubleshooting and couldn't couldn't figure it out. Okay, so um, one of the topics, one of the issues with this this thing of what is a woman, why it's relevant, is it's what what I'll call a watershed issue. And it was Greg Kokel who pointed this out on homosexuality years ago. He goes, "It's a watershed issue." Now, a watershed is like think of the roof of your house. When when water hits the roof of your house, house, it's either going to go you know right or left. It's going to go one or the other. It can't keep going straight. When people hit the issue of, say, homosexuality, they're either going to go um, with God or they're going to go with, with Satan on this topic. Like, it's going to be the reality. That's the same as the gender issue. The, the gender issue is a watershed issue. It not only dictates what you think about one issue, it dictates what you think about lots of issues. Because the moment you accept the new gender ideology, that your internal desires and sense of self can actually create a new identity for you that is completely contrary to physical realities. As soon as you believe that, you're gonna believe all kinds of weird stuff. Like it's inevitable. You're gonna to have to support because you're gonna be logically consistent to, to some degree. So this is a watershed issue. Um, it's the thing that holds the LGBT stuff together because in some ways homosexuality is actually, you know, it's just trying to do like an analysis of the, the logic of things here is actually opposed to transgender issues. Because, uh, you know, if, if let's say if I was gay, I, I'm gonna say I'm only attracted to men. And then a, a woman comes up to me and she goes, well, I'm a man, you're attracted to me, right? And I go, well, no, I'm only attracted to like real men. And so you start to see there's like this conflict. There's even people who've come out, transgender who've come out like on TikTok and stuff saying, you have to date us and you have to be romantic with us or else you're being a bigot and you're being oppressive and you're responsible for us committing suicide and things like that. And so there's a conflict brewing within the, the L, right? And the, 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 excuse me, the L and the G and the T. These, these, these don't fit together well, but where they do agree, what holds them together, it seems to me, 
is the idea that you can sort of invent your own purpose. You can sort of decide your own agenda in life and you can create a morality and a truth based upon your desires. So this is what I, what I find consistent in progressive Christianity in general. It's what we find consistent in um, the, the, the sort of really liberal politics and um, religious stuff. You create your own sense of purpose and identity. It comes from you. Now, biblically speaking, you know, God made them male and female. This, this, this is the worldview behind this is the idea that God is the one who assigned your gender. But he didn't just assign it. It was way more, it was more of a power move than assigning your gender. God created, he made them male and female. So Adam and Eve, by virtue of God's creation, were made male and female. All other consequent humans are therefore, and obviously there's this, this very small number of people who have a genetic issue. Other than that, you've got clear, you're male, you're female. Even the people who have gender uh, or, or sex issues because of chromosome issues and things like that are usually much more clearly one than the other. And so that is a worldview issue. This is a worldview issue where we say, hey, God from the outside designs us, has a purpose for us, and there's objective reality that we should submit to. And when our minds are making up new purposes and new morals, that's us being delusional. We should come in line with God's truth. Watershed issue. If you go down this side, down the la-la land of making everything, this is going to cause you great harm. And this is another issue, the great harm that, it's being, that is being caused by the trans stuff. Women's sports is one issue a lot of people are aware of now. And I think that this is, this is uh, something that's, it's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, uh, YouTube's giving me a notification. They're like, now would be a good time to insert ads. No. <laughs> if you ever have an ad in the middle of one of my videos, like in the, mid, in the middle, it's not me, guys. YouTube always is trying to find ways to do that to you. Um, the, uh, the, the, what was I talking about? Sorry, YouTube distracted me. They've never sent me a notification like that while I'm streaming. Um, I was talking about something that was super important and relevant to everybody's lives. Oh, women's sports. <laughs> okay, so women's sports, the topic is, is like the tip of an iceberg, uh, whereas the real issues, the, the danger of the iceberg is much lower. But the women's sports shows you some of this with, with men competing and beating and, and defeating women, breaking all records and stuff like this because men are physically superior to women in most ways. That's, that's the real world we live in. That's offensive to many people. But reality itself is becoming offensive to people. Um, are, are, does that make men uh, more human than women? No. <laughs> and that would be a really silly thing to say. But that is a huge topic, right? Uh, there's th this, this, this women's sports thing is something that should be addressed and should be analyzed. And, sh and we should actually push back on this because it connects back to a watershed issue. It connects back to an issue that's being pushed in our culture today. I think as a Christian, it's good for us to address these topics. And if people rage and freak out, it is completely and entirely their fault. Completely and entirely their own fault for raging and freaking out. And if you're thinking, well, you burned the bridge. They might have accepted Christ. What you're doing is you're muzzling every Christian and every pastor from discussing topics that I think Jesus and, and Paul and, and the prophets would have discussed. I think if Jeremiah walked into our culture today, he would, he would be like, your men are acting like women and your women are acting like men and what to your shame you you do not know the god who made you and you think you can make yourself in your own image and i think that this is this is what the the prophets would do um and so it's good the the but it's just the tip of the iceberg women's sports when you look deeper you see uh you're, there's there's sexual predators taking advantage of uh the opportunity to go into bathrooms um there's 
there's been people who are literally documented sexual predators who are doing drag drag queen story hour for children and drag dances sex dances for children for chi for children this is sodom and gomorrah level de depravity that we're experiencing in our culture today how do we not how do we not deal with this these issues if god will judge people for those issues christians should be able to talk about those issues there's a good principle for us and god will definitely judge our culture for this there's also surgery hormone blockers for kids 16 years old getting getting um, women getting their breasts okay parents if you haven't realized yet this is maybe not the time for kids to be watching okay so there you go i give you a few seconds to hit pause come back later women getting uh young women 16 year old woman getting her breast chopped off taking hormone blockers and then taking testosterone to try to beef up and get stronger and pretend that she's a man having sections of their arm cut off so that they can form something to look like a male you know body part that's that doesn't make them man it makes them a butchered a butchered woman that these what i'm saying is you think women's sports is bad look at these operations that are happening look at these hormone blockers that we don't even have data on yet i, I so i watched uh, matt walsh's documentary it's an hour and a half long you can only get it on dailywire.com they're not paying me for this this is not anything i'm getting i don't i don't do advertisements i, I literally get reach people reach out all the time hey mike we'll give you this money to advertise this product and i always say no because i'm not interested in doing that but i think that the what is a woman documentary was fantastic and it was it's worth watching for you guys to go to dailywire.com and check it out the only criticism i have and it is the only one is that it does leave God out of the picture. It, it From the surface, it's a completely secular documentary. It's as though God is something that's never brought into the situation. And um, for too long, Christians have operated like that. Whenever we talk in public, we have to act as though God is not relevant to the issues. And that, I think, is a huge mistake. Um, I get it, Daily Wire's not trying to cross that bridge. Well, I'm a Christian. I'm gonna cross that bridge. So, <laughs> so there we go. Um, I, there's my thoughts on it. I'll just go to question number two. And you guys, I'm interested in hearing your feedback, what you think about these things. Yes, I think Christians can and should talk about these issues. Um, they're relevant to our culture. They are part of a sinful rebellion against the design of God that he made the male and female. Against it, Romans 1 talks about this, that it's part of the depravity of man to move in towards homosexuality, that this is, a, this is something that has to be repented of. For these reasons, the wrath of God comes upon the world. I think transgender is different than homosexuality, but it's intimately connected in ways that are very significant and we should be talking about it. There we go. Question number two. I Love Wayne's World says, most of my friends claim to be Christians, but they support Pride Month. It depresses me that they encourage gay marriage, with the, which the Bible clearly says is a sin. How do I talk to them about this? Um, in my experience, most of the people who, I'm just being straight with y'all, which is what I'm always gonna do here. Um, most of the people who support gay marriage do it without having really thought very deeply about the topics. They, they feel very deeply about them. And now some are gonna take this as an insult. I don't mean it that way, it's more of an analysis. They feel very strongly and very deeply about the issues, but they're, they have a very hard time carrying on a civil and high level discussion about the topics at hand. For example, um, they look at marriage as a right, whereas the people who are opposed to gay marriage are usually looking at marriage as a thing. Not a right, but a thing. It, it's, it's a, it has a meaning. It's a word that has a meaning. And so they're arguing against gay marriage, not because they think gay people can't marry, but because they think marriage is between a man and woman by nature. 
Like this is the meaning of marriage. This is the definition of marriage. And so when you say that's gay marriage, gay marriage is two men or two women marrying, you're like, but that's not marriage. Like that's definitionally not marriage. Imagine, I mean, this is the same as the, the what is a woman issue. It's like this is a topic that's related to redefining terms and throwing out not only true meanings of terms so that woman becomes this, you can't even give a definition for it, right? What is a woman? I don't know. It could be anything. If you identify as a woman, you're a woman, which is... This. <laughs> That's like saying, what's a boat? Well, a boat is, is, the, is a thing that identifies as a boat. It's a boat. It, it, it's total nonsense. But um, the, um, the, the reason that, um, that, oh, I just lost my train of thought. Um, <laughs> oh, the, the reason why there's, there's confusion here, and I've had success with people when I talked about this, is to say, I don't care about gay marriage. Gay people can get married all they want, as long as it's one man and one woman. And they go, what? And you realize at that point, if you're, if, if you're on the side of pro, su supporting gay marriage to any degree, I want to suggest for a second that if you don't understand this sentence, you, don't, you literally don't even understand the topic. Here's my suggestion, right? Here's the sentence. Gay people can get married all they want as long as it's one man and one woman. Do, do, do you understand that sentence and why that sentence cuts right through the topic and separates it into two very different Two very different debates. One debate is, shouldn't all humans have the right to get married? Well, I don't know. I mean, marriage are right. Like, all humans should be allowed to get married. Okay, yeah, I agree. I agree. Right? When they reach certain age, responsibility and stuff like that. But that has nothing to do with gay marriage. Literally zero to do with it. What it, what it is, is it's about a definition of marriage. The definition of marriage is one man, one woman. It's literally been that way for all of time. And from a Christian perspective, as you say this as Christians... That was God's description and definition of marriage. Like he, this is so consistent in the scriptures. He makes a male and female, a man right, shall leave his father and mother and become one with his wife. This is male, female by nature. It's not just two people. It's always a man and a woman. Even, even with the sad and, and sinful issues of polygamy, it was always, polygamy is not one marriage with a man and six women, right? This is one man and one woman. That's a marriage. That man and another woman, that's another marriage. A man and another another marriage, they're all compromised. They're all damaged through polygamy. But polygamy is still just a man and a woman. Throughout history, marriage has always been one man, one woman. It's just always been that way. Um, culturally, there's no culture I know of that would be different on, this, on these issues. Biblically speaking, that's what God gave to us. And when the Supreme Court did the Obergefell decision, and they actually wrote, if, if you actually read their decision out, they even acknowledge this. They go throughout history, it's always been a man and a woman. What we're doing is we're fundamentally redefining the word marriage. Like, and, and if you're, a, if you're a American and you understand the function of the Supreme Court, you know how wild this is. Okay, so the Supreme Court's not supposed to redefine words. <laughs> they were trying to, they were creating new law by redefining a term. So they redefined and they said it in the decision, we're redefining the word marriage. Now it means just two of anybody. Right, so two men, two women, doesn't matter. So what we have here is an issue where um, uh, Christians who are compromised on the topic of marriage and on gay marriage are compromised in a way that is, is not only embarrassing, is not only confusing, is not only kind of ignorant because they're, most of them, you tell me guys, they're really not even aware we're talking about a definition of a word, not a right. Not a right, a definition of a word, marriage and a concept. And a step beyond that as a Christian they're literally rejecting what God has revealed in his word. So those Christians need to be rebuked 
and done so with care, done so with patience, like, like it says in Timothy, you know, but that we should gently correct those who are in error, right, with patience, and that we should be careful that we're not falling into sin as we bring the correction, but it absolutely has to come. I'm so sorry. I, I think I would encourage you, I love Wayne's World, talk about the, what is marriage definitionally. Talk about Genesis. Talk about the New Testament. Talk about Jesus, how he appeals to Genesis to define marriage. And know this, that historically speaking, while there was no culture that embraced same-sex marriage at the time, they were aware of same-sex marriage at the time. They were aware of all kinds of those behaviors. Same-sex committed relationships happened in the first century. They weren't perfectly socially acceptable, certainly not to the Jews. And when Paul brought, came into the Roman environment, where there was more acceptance of same-sex uh, relationships, the that is exactly where he writes Romans 1, specifically refuting those things. So there's 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 no... Um, there's no wiggle room there. If, if you know, if you want to represent Jesus correctly, you you cannot affirm gay marriage. That's 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 the end of it. Like there's you know, all right. Next question number three. Be cool says in John fifteen fifteen. Jesus tells the apostle, "No longer do I call you servants, but friends." How do we properly approach our position as friends of Jesus while not neglecting to still serve him? All right, let's look at that passage together. Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. There's an element of friendship that Jesus is, is, is giving um, to, to us all. He wants us, like in, I'm going to tell you how I understand this passage. Um, like when Paul talks about how we have the mind of Christ, right? And and just a very monumental and amazing reality that, that Paul tells us to walk in the spirit, to walk in the spirit, something that he, he would never have said before he encountered Christ, before he was saved, before he was born again, before he, he understood more about this intimate relationship we have with the Holy Spirit. Like you couldn't say walking in the spirit was like the normal command to the Israelite before the new covenant when Jesus says, like, I will give you the spirit. Um, I will send the spirit and, you know, all these benefits will come your way. So what we're saying here is like um, a servant is just following instructions, but uh, but a friend under, understands you better. You know what I'm doing. You get me better. I, I want you, God wants you to intimately understand him better, including his holiness and his love. And um, that's kind of what I see there. Now, your question is, um, how do we properly approach our position as friends of Jesus while not neglecting to still serve him? Um, so consider Jesus' relationship with the Father as an example. Jesus has, from eternity past, he is, he's the word who's with God and is God. John chapter 1, right, verses 1 through 3. Jesus is with God and is God. Both of those realities, which is the foundation of the Trinity. So Jesus is with God and is God. Okay, that tight, incredible connection. Yet Jesus, when he's in his incarnation, he always walks in deep and, and uh, personal relationship with God, with the Father, but he also walks in total, total obedience at all times, always honoring and always respecting and always doing exactly what the Father directs. That is the model for us in our relationships with, with God. I always acknowledge his greatness and his glory and my position as his his, the one who obeys him at all times, but I also recognize my deep personal relationship. I don't think these are in conflict. People who have an, uh, there could be a psychological thing that happens where some Christians 
you have a general problem with authority. Now that that could be because you you had abuse in the past. Uh, somebody people who are in authority over you had horrible relationships with you, and so it's hard for you to conceive of having someone who is total authority over you and also deep personal relationship. But all I want to do is move you from looking at God through the lens of some past injury or some person who's hurt you in the past as if God is somehow reflected in their eyes and letting God be, be God who is holy and righteous and perfect and pure in all that he does. And he's totally the, the boss at the same time. <laughs> so yeah, I don't, uh, I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is I don't have any problem with this idea that I'm his friend and he's totally my Lord at the same time. And if you do have a problem with those two con, con, coinciding, then that might be some like work you got to do on your own ability to work through those things. Yeah. Uh, question number four, this is from Curtis Glass, who says, what does John 1 verses 1 through 4 say about the importance of the Bible? Should we worship the Bible? Some say they won't read the Bible, but at the same time, they say they're Christian. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Man, I, I get this. Oh, it drives me nuts hearing Christians say this. Um, so John 1, 1 through 4. Let's ask the question of what this says about the Bible, and then I'll respond to the idea of um, uh, worshiping the Bible and those who say we they won't read the Bible even though they're Christian. Like they won't. Not just that they don't, like, oh, I feel bad I should read it, but they won't. Like I don't, I don't need it. It's not important for me. All right, here's John 1, verses 1 through 4. And I want you guys to ask, what is this talking about when it says the word? I just mentioned this in the last question, so good, good timing. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Whatever the word is, in the beginning, but like before there's ever a Bible written, the word's existing. Right? In the beginning, meaning, meaning John's paralleling Genesis here. So like here, um, it, you know, the, the parallel with Genesis 1 is in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John 1 is saying in the beginning the word just was. No creation. The word was not made. The word simply was. Now we don't mean a physical Bible, do we? No, we don't mean that. Right? And the word was with God. Okay, well, you could have you could have a physical Bible with God, but I mean, how does that how does the Bible exist without you know written anything or you know space or anything or a planet or anything? Um, the Word was with God, and then the Word was God, and now you're like, wait a minute, we, we we're not even talking about the Bible here. We're saying the Word, but we don't mean the Bible. In the Greek, the word is logos here, and John seems to be borrowing from a cultural thing that was going on. There's a, there's a Jewish writer, first century Jewish writer named Philo, who would use the word logos to talk about like the wisdom of God and this, not talking about the Old Testament or anything, but to talk about like the wisdom of God or, or, or this sort of creative power of God. And John is not saying whatever Philo said is right. He is not saying that, oh, please know this, just because they both use the word in a special way doesn't mean that, they're, that John is just agreeing with Philo about everything, all this theology. But rather what it does is it shows us that in the context of the first century, the word word had, had a greater uh, range of meaning than written word, the Bible. Does that help? So what we're seeing is in the beginning he was with God. We'll see this, obviously the word is Jesus here, right? In the beginning he's, he's, he's with God. All things were made through him. So now we get, he's a he. It, it, it's personal. The Bible's never a he. Scripture's never called he. Scripture's never personalized like that. But the Bible here is a he, right? Uh, or excuse me, the word. 
here, referring to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made, which of course means Jesus himself was not made. In him, Because that would be that's, that's a nice, tight little logical argument there. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, and it t- talks about John the Baptist, and how he came to bear witness about this light, about this word. And then verse 14, Jesus shows up, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And, we, and we've seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, the point at which Jesus is walking amongst them, the New Testament isn't written yet. And nobody would have looked at Jesus and thought he was the Old Testament or the New, that he was the Bible itself. So, this verse that you brought up has very little to do with Scripture and everything to do with Jesus. That's very interesting. And I know it's a little challenging, but we're talking about the nature of, of God. So of course there's some challenging things for us to wrap our heads around, but there's no connection to the word. Now, let me go to your other your other questions. Um should we worship the Bible? No, you should not worship the Bible. You should only worship God. I've never met anybody who worships the Bible. I've never seen anybody worship the Bible. So so I I'm not really worried about this happening in the church. I've never seen it happen. Uh, some pretend that if you really if you keep going, but the Bible says, the Bible says that you're worshiping the Bible, that's very foolish. Um, right? <laughs> Do I have to explain? <laughs> but there are those who are like, you keep, you know, you're such a Bible thumper. You're, you're keep quoting the Bible. It's always Bible. Not everything has to be written in the Bible. You know, you worship the Bible. You worship the Bible. This is just slander. This is just baseless slander. So I'm just going to pass it on, pass on it. Um, then you say, some say they won't read the Bible, but at the same time, they are Christian. That is just a great tragedy. Because the heart of Christianity is love for God. What if someone you love, you love them above anyone else, above anything else in the world, you love them with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you live for them, you owe them everything, and they write a book, and they give it to you, and they tell you, this is an immensely valuable thing. I want you to know it. I want you to learn it. I've written it. Uh, through inspiration, I've, I've given you so many wonderful blessings and truths that are in it. And you're like, look, I love you with all my heart, but I'm totally not going to read your book. Um, it's a sad thing. Number five, Billows Pillow says, how can I reconcile 1 Corinthians 10, 13 after decades of struggle with sloth, bad work ethic, sin at work, praying for forgiveness, but was recently diagnosed ADHD. Now, I now see I can't help it without meds. Well, let me give you my answer on this. First Corinthians 10, 13. And my answer is a primarily a theological answer, not a medical answer. So if you're looking for medical expertise on ADHD, I don't have it. I'm not going to try to pretend I do. But I do trust the scripture on this topic of temptation. And I do think that there is a cliff that some have walked off when it comes to ADHD and these other issues. Um, I also want to say what I'm about to tell you is not meant to minimize those things. Um, I was I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was a kid. I don't know if it was, it wasn't a very good diagnosis. The doctor asked me like three questions. Are you bored in school? Yeah. Do you find the work challenging? No. Do you, do you find that you frequently get distracted and you have a hard time staying focused? Yeah, which, which is true still today. Um, and then she goes, and this was when Ritalin just came out and she's like, uh, at least I think it just came out. And she's like, you know, I'd like to give you a prescription for Ritalin. I think you have ADHD. And I remember my mom looking at me going, 
you know, what do you think? And I, and I was like in elementary school and I was smart enough to go, you know, in my head, I thought, I don't think that sounded like a very good diagnosis. She didn't take any tests. There was, there was literally no tests. She just asked me questions. Like, I, I just find it very difficult. So, <clears throat> uh oh, now we get drop frames. Man, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sketchy day for streaming. So the, um, the, the statements I'll now make about these things. 1 Corinthians 10.13 does give us a rule that I think applies to you, even if you have ADHD, even if you legitimately have it, even though I, I didn't exactly get a real diagnosis. Hold on just a second, guys. I, you know, we're, we're, we live stream, and so I have to check these issues. Crackle's back. I don't know if anything I did that might have made that different. Okay, um... <clears throat> The verse says, no temptations overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Do you believe that God is faithful? I do. He will not let you. This is based on God's faithfulness. He's not going to allow something. What's he not going to allow? He's not going to let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, some think the escape is, I'm escaping the temptation, but he means escaping the sin. So I'm going to be tempted. You will be tempted, but God is holding back temptation so that you do have a choice. So when it comes to ADHD, or um, and, and you mentioned specific issues, um, let's read them again. Um, sloth, bad work ethic, sin at work, praying for forgiveness. Uh, okay, that's not that's just something you were doing, but you were diagnosed with ADHD. Um, you nay, you now see that you can't help it without meds. Now it's possible that meds help you. And that things get easier with meds. But I'm going to tell you that every, every, this is, I think, the biblical truth. And this is the truth I tell myself, too. It's hard, but I believe it's entirely true. Every time you were slothful at work, that you had bad work ethic, or that you sinned at work, that was a sin you didn't have to do. And that's based on God's faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. You didn't have to do it. Now, it might be true, and please hear me out, it might be true that with ADHD or whatever is going on with you, that you have increased temptations and you have increased difficulty handling the issues that are going on. But that fundamentally, the temptation is the same thing other people get tempted with, and there's countless people around the world that are tempted to be lazy, that are tempted to, to be distracted and stuff like that. I used to have a guitar student who, uh, he had ADHD. And at one point I was, you know, we're sitting there doing guitar lessons. He was losing interest in it, right? Which happens commonly with kids. And you got like a, a young, a teenager. He's like 14 or 15 or something. And, um, and I'm teaching him to play guitar. And he's not really focusing. And so I, so I stopped and I asked him, did you hear what I just asked you to do? And he's like, no, sorry, Mike. I said, no, I, I need you to focus. I need you to pay attention, you know, that this is important, you know. So uh, do this behavior. And then he turned to me and he says, well, I can't help it. I have ADHD. This is my, my terror with ADHD diagnoses. I can't help it. I have ADHD. I can now feel comfortable with my sin. I can now feel comfortable with my bad behaviors because I'm a special case. I have an excuse. I've got the get out of sin free card, <laughs> get out of guilt free card, and I can throw it out there. I have ADHD. It's not my fault. So I told him, I said, you know, um, I have a hard time paying attention with the things too, but do you know what that means if you have ADHD? And he goes, what? He said, it means you have to work harder. Well, the coolest thing was like a week later, we had a similar situation where he, he stopped paying attention for a moment. I said something, he was just like staring at the wall. And, 
And then, which is, I understand, okay, I'm not calling that sin. I'm just using this as an, an example of how this diagnosis can cause you to just give up even trying to be godly. Um, and he turned to me and he was like, oh, I'm sorry. I know. I really have to work harder. I got to try harder to pay attention. That's the takeaway, right? If, if you're blind, you have to try harder to not run into things when you're walking. You can't just swing your stick around and run down the street and then tell people, sorry, I'm blind. You have to also work. Everybody understands you're blind, but you have to work harder to make sure that you don't run into things. This is the nature of being blind. You, when you're deaf, you have to work hard to read lips. You have to work hard to pay attention to what's going on around you. You can't just ignore the world and say, well, I'm deaf. No big deal. There's, there's extra effort that needs to be put into it. I, I think that's the truth. Now, maybe your medication helps you. I'm not saying that. It doesn't. I'm just saying, don't go there. I can't help it. All the sin I've done for all these years at work, where I was getting paid to do things I didn't do, where I was going behind my employer's back by misusing my time and basically stealing from them, that was totally not my fault. <laughs> um, don't go there. As a Christian, you need the grace of the cross. You don't need the excuses that tell you that you don't even need grace. You do need grace. You need God's forgiveness. But you do not need excuses that tell you that your sin was never really sin. That's a very dangerous thing for believers. James Sander Cedarlaff says, Since the Bible wasn't written with chapters and verses, how should that impact our reading of the current translations? Um, it should. That's a great thing for people to know if they didn't know this. Your Bible did not have chapters or verses. Um, for like, you know, when they opened the Bible in, in Jesus's own time, there was no chapter. This is why when, it, when, when Jesus opens the scroll of Isaiah, it doesn't say he opened it to Isaiah, this chapter. It's like, he opened it to this portion and they would identify scripture by being, by saying like, oh, uh, he opened it to, you know, you could open your Bible to the, uh, to the burning bush passage. Like they would identify a passage through a phrase like that, the burning bush passage, not, you know, Exodus chapter or whatever. Um, so how should this affect our reading? What, well, what, what it should do is it should make us realize that, um, um, I don't have any good, all my Bibles are up above there. Um, it should make us realize that when you open the Bible and you see a chapter distinction, you're not seeing God's inspired paragraph break or new subject line. And it's usually chapters are put in helpful places, but sometimes they're actually put in bad places or Maybe there was no good place to put a chapter there because it was a continued idea and it just kept going. What you need to do is read the stuff before the chapter and, and in the chapter to identify whether maybe to understand it properly, you need those verses before it. That's the primary issue. Otherwise, I think chapters and verses are very helpful. They help us to, you know, like we're doing this Q&A. Imagine how hard it would be if there were no chapters and verses to use. They're very helpful, but it's something you have to know. The Bible Ignore chapters and verse distinctions when you're looking to understand a passage. Only use chapter and verse distinctions when you're looking to tell somebody where a passage is. They're only useful for telling, they're like a Dewey Decimal System. The Dewey Decimal System tells you nothing about the book. It just tells you where it is in the library. And uh, unless I'm getting this, I haven't used that system in a long time, <laughs> unless I'm getting it wrong. Uh, but the chapter and verse verses do not tell you anything about the context, anything about the meaning. They only tell you where it's located. That's all it's for. And if you think of it that way, it'll be good. Skill Mage says, what's your understanding as to why the Jews don't believe in Jesus and are waiting on someone else? Um, I think primarily it's tradition. Um, the, uh, the, the, I think, I think the, okay, you, you asked my understanding on this. I think the majority of Jews, 
don't really know a lot about Jesus. When I've heard from those who were Jews and then came to the Messiah, came to came to Christ, they talk about how they had really very, very shallow understanding of Christianity and of Jesus in particular. Uh, one Jew said that he thought that the New Testament was literally a set of documents about how to persecute Jews. And it was when he opened up the Bible and he reads Matthew and it starts with the genealogy and he starts to realize, wait a minute, this entire thing was written by Jews. I mean, Matthew is like written about Jesus, a, a Jew writing about a, a first century Jew who claimed to be the Messiah, which is not actually considered that bad in Judaism to claim to be the Messiah. Maybe you are, you know, they're, they're okay with that. Um, in Judaism, the, um, the current like tradition in Orthodox Judaism is if you are a Messianic Jew, it's fine as long as your Messiah is not Jesus. So there's, there's been rabbis even recently who some Jews say, hey, I think that's the Messiah, you know, and then they're fine with it. They're like, yeah, you're still a Jew. Of course you're Jew. But when you put your faith in Jesus, you, that, you're not even a Jew anymore. You're not a Jew anymore. Even if you're continuing to observe traditions and things like that. And so this is a, a, um, a hotbed for general cultural confusion about the nature of the New Testament, about who Jesus is, about what he claimed. If you can be a Jew and believe in any old Messiah, but not Jesus, him specifically, you can't. Like what's going on here is something, something strange. Something strange. Maybe this is like a spiritual darkness that's happening and it's very sad. It's not something anybody's happy about. We want to share the Jewish Messiah with the Jewish people. He's their Messiah. You belong here, y'all. <laughs> you belong here trusting in Jesus, your Messiah. Um, what reasons do they give? They'll often give reasons like, well, the Messiah is not going to die. He died, and he died by crucifixion. Like, God would not allow that to happen. Um, but this is, again, this is modern rabbinic. Okay, let me just go through a quick timeline for you, right? Old Testament Judaism is one thing, right? When you get to the first century, when you get to Jesus's time, it's an it's a slightly altered version, but it's still relatively Old Testament. They're still observing the feast the same way. They still kind of have, you know, they just have these Pharisees and, and these Sadducees who are kind of like adding a lot of traditions. But at its, at its core, it's still Old Testament, you know, OG Judaism. Um, and then you get to uh, the time after the New Testament, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, now Judaism goes through a radical revolution and a new type of Judaism emerges called rabbinic Judaism, where they reimagine Judaism with no temple and no sacrifices. And so good works take the place of sacrifices in some ways. And, and at the same time, they're pulling away from Christians who are saying, this is the real Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah, and they're creating something that's meant to be distinct from that. So this is created as a reaction. Rabbinic Judaism is radically different. You know, if you meet a modern Jew who's even Orthodox, they're not Old Testament style, man. They're rabbinic, post-New Testament style. And uh, one of the things they were believing when Jesus was alive was that the Messiah could die. Uh, this was a debate because they saw passages in the Old Testament that recommended that the Messiah was going to suffer and die. So they tried to reconcile this. Uh, there was the two Messiahs view. This is in Second Temple literature in between the first and the, the Old and New Testaments. And they were like, hey, you know, there's going to be a suffering Messiah. He'll die. And then there's going to be another Messiah who comes and he reigns. So they had a two Messiah perspective. At least some people did. This is because the idea of the Messiah suffering was something that they saw in their scriptures. Uh, now, however, all those passages like Isaiah 53 in rabbinic Judaism, it's ingrained. If they talk about it, they always say, oh, it's Israel. It's not about, it's not about 
the Messiah, it's only about Israel, the suffering Messiah. Is really, it's just Israel. We're the ones suffering. Even though that completely contradicts the passage. And that's not the common historical understanding if you go really back in the rabbinic writings. I've done, and I've done research on this. I'm not just making stuff up. Um, and so all that to say, the less informed Jews have shallow confusions about Christianity. Oh, it's anti-Jewish. Oh, and don't get me started on the Catholic Church and how they've helped promote this. I, forgive me, Catholic, I'm not trying to attack you here. Historically speaking, just go read the papal bulls. Just spend a few hours one day reading through the historic papal bulls, and you'll see the animosity between uh, official you know, uh, Roman Catholicism and Judaism has been intense. And it went both ways, but this has left historically, and then look at even, even and that's not only, even in Protestantism, there's been plenty of anti-Semitic stuff that's just burned bridges. So the belief is, you know, shallow belief under many modern Jews is that Christianity was... Um, anti-Semitic at its core. It's, it's about as Semitic as it gets at its core, right? Like I, I have a Jewish faith. I'm not a Jew, but I have a Jewish faith. I have a Jewish Messiah. And, and I think the, the, the Jews are um, a, a blessed people whom God has called to know him and love him and they've just missed their Messiah and I just hope they come back. Uh, and, and those who have, have, and there's plenty. There's more Jews following Jesus now than at any other time in history. So that's a wonderful thing. Um, so all, all that to say, um, there's that sort of animosity towards Christianity. Then there's like Jesus is the exception to the rule. He's the one Messiah you're not allowed to believe in. And there's also a, a reimagining of messianic prophecy to try to make sure that you can't use those passages to talk about Jesus. That's happened in rabbinic Judaism over time. There's some of those answers. Um, if you guys want more on this, I recommend a four, it's a five volume series now, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus by Dr. Michael Brown. It's the best thing I've seen on the topic. The best thing I've seen on the topic. And it not only reasons, but it reasons in kind of 19 verses 1 and 2. Let's look at Acts 19 verses 1 and 2. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said, did you receive this, the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So there's, here's believers, they're disciples, it says. They're believers. They believed, and they didn't receive the Holy Spirit. And then, but then Paul pushes further. He goes, "Well, in what did the, into what then were you baptized? Like, how did you? Apparently, part of the baptism routine for Christians was related to the Holy Spirit, right? Like, I, and we we do this. I baptized you in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Paul's like, "What were you baptized into then? What was what was that? They said, and this is what gives us clarity into John's baptism." Now, John baptized, and this is actually, I'll just read Paul here. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. So, they were disciples of John. So, they had like reformed in their understanding of, ooh, of I almost knocked my water over. My arms are flying today. They were reformed in their understanding of, um, of, of Jewish religious practice. So that was there. They had high expectations of the Messiah to come, but they didn't really understand it was Jesus and, and, and understand about him. So they were believers, but not Christian believers in the full sense. Paul then explains to them, he baptizes them, right? On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then the Holy Spirit came upon them. So what I'm suggesting is verses one and two, when it says that they were disciples, it doesn't mean they were Christians who had 
who had put their trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus. John had disciples too, remember? Even in the book, in Luke, it'll talk about John's disciples. And here Luke writes Acts, he's talking about disciples. So that would be how I interpret that. I don't think that that's a challenge for the view that you get the Holy Spirit upon salvation. Number nine, Tom Swagger says, are you playing cards wrong? Oh, I don't know why I added you in there. He said, are playing cards wrong? <laughs> um, I was like, am I playing them wrong? Uh, are playing cards wrong? My parents think that they're wrong. Even if I'm not playing like poker or anything like that, they think that there's some kind of evil in the card itself. Okay, this is a pretty extreme view um, that like, let's say you're playing war, right? The, the old card game we used to play when we were kids, you're playing war, you're playing go fish. Is that wrong? Why would it be wrong? Is our games inherently wrong? Is there any scripture that suggests games are wrong? I mean, generally, all things are a blessing from God. So unless there's a problem with it, it's probably good. This is like a good rule of thumb. Uh, moderation is important and things like that. So I, I, But I think without any scripture that says that games are actually inherently wrong, and with elements of gaming and competition we find at some places in, in scripture, I think that we'd, we'd have to have a reason to tie down why playing cards are wrong. So the only thing I can think is this guilt by association. So it's going like this, uh, and I'm going to guess here at, at the thinking that's going on with, with uh, your parents here. So, Tom, maybe they're thinking, um, hey, cards are related to gambling. Gambling is related to sin of all kinds, right? Because where, where there's gambling, there also tends to be a bunch of other sin issues that are in there. Uh, obsessive compulsive behaviors and wasting of finances and people who've lost their homes and their families and um, and people who are uh, manipulating others through gambling to try to get money from them and things like so there's all these sins that we think are associated with them so then that that sin the sins which are genuine sins are just related to all gambling which I'm not sure that all gambling is actually sinful um, although much of it ends up being, but no, I don't think personally, I, I should do a video on this sometime, but I, I, I don't gamble. I don't want to gamble. I don't like gambling. It seems like a total waste, but I don't think it's inherently sinful at all times. Okay. But they're relating that to gambling. Gambling is a sin to, to cards are associated with gambling. So then therefore they're sinful by association, but this is highly selective. And this is this is perhaps what I might do if I was talking to my parents. Well, first off, I wouldn't, I, I would honestly, I would just say, don't worry about it. Like, just let them think that. It's not worth dividing over this issue. But if you were to try to approach the topic, I think I'd want to show them that you can't keep doing this guilt by association thing. So how much of your life do you have to stop doing, right? Like, like drinking is obviously associated alcohol, alcoholism, car accidents, and all kinds of liver disease and things like this. That's so, so alcohol is associated with that, just like playing cards are associated with, with, with uh, sin. So then all alcohol is wrong. But Jesus drank alcohol. Oh, no, that wasn't really, that wasn't alcohol. You don't understand history. No, you don't understand history. <laughs> that was alcohol. Um, you know, that, so all alcohol is wrong. Okay, but we have to take it further. What about gluttony? Gluttony is a sin in the Bible too, right? So what about cheeseburgers? Like, there's a lot of gluttons out there who are overweight and who have all diabetes and all kinds of issues, and they have a cheeseburger and a soda and fries. So aren't cheeseburgers and soda and fries also associated with sin? So shouldn't we ban cheeseburgers, sodas, and fries for Christians? Where do you get off this train is the, is the issue that I want us to have. Like, where do I get off the... 
the Bible tells us not to sin, but it doesn't tell us to, and not to make any provision for the flesh, of course. So if you have a sin, for, sin problem with gambling, you shouldn't step anywhere near it. If you have a sin problem with drinking, you should, shouldn't step anywhere near it. But to make it a rule for every believer, it seems to me, is not encouraged in Scripture. Like using, using alcohol as the example. And I have a video on this if you guys are interested. I go through every verse, positive and negative, about alcohol. And I still don't drink. So this isn't about a guy supporting his drinking habit. Um, but, um, but, but it's the same issue with alcohol, right? Uh, this is a positive thing that's meant to be for man's enjoyment and a blessing. It can easily turn into sin. That's the part you watch out for. But there's a positive thing. You don't throw the baby with the bathwater. So go play cards. Um, Ethan Wisden says, If Satan was able to dis disobey and sin against God in heaven along with him persuading others to sin. How do we know we will not sin against God when we are home with him? I'm struggling with this. Well, Ethan, and I remember you, buddy. We met before um, in person. Uh, but the um, the question is, yeah, like w what keeps me from sinning? If Satan's going to sin in heaven, why wouldn't I do it? And I want to I talk to you about how you're going to be different, not just your environment, okay? Heaven, you'll be in heaven, okay? When you're in a better environment, you tend to act better. Right? Like we all act better in church. And this is not a hip hypocrite thing necessarily. It's a, I'm in an environment that's reinforced by our shared commitment to the glory of God. Okay. And this is a, so people tend to act better in church. Um, and that, that's not necessarily a negative thing. It can be if it's fake and not just you're naturally doing it, then it's bad. But, but other than your environment, other than being in the environment of when you're in God's glory, and, and this would be the thing, hey, if God's glory stopped me from sinning, why didn't Satan stop from sinning? That makes total sense. I hear you. But it's more than your environment that changes when you get to heaven. You change. You fundamentally change. Here are some of the changes you go through. Okay, You have a closer, intimate, more intimate relationship with God than ever before. So scripture says, um, let, me, let, me take, let me take you there. Um, First Corinthians 13, verse 12. It says, now we see in a mirror dimly. This is our current spiritual understanding of things. Specifically our spiritual understanding, our comprehension of, 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 of the nature and goodness of God, our understanding of spiritual truths. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. So there's a deep um, awa awakening, awareness, spiritual awareness that we have that is going to impact our behavior. But there's a lot more than that. Scripture, and for the sake of time, I'll, I'm going to summarize some things. Scripture tells us that your flesh will be gone. Right? 1 Corinthians 15 tells you that your corruption, that's this body, is going to put on incorruption. And that seems to be for two reasons. One, so you can live forever because this body is not designed to live forever. You'll have a new body that will be designed to live forever. But also because this body is associated with, and I'm not saying that bodies are sinful. They're not inherently sinful. That's a weird Gnostic heresy thing. But they're, they are connected to our sin natures. That's why the Bible calls uh, the, the temptations to sin as arising from the flesh. Do not walk in the flesh, but walk in the spirit. Put off the flesh and put on the new person in Christ, Ephesians, right? So, Ethan, your flesh will be gone. This, you know how you've prayed, as I have, as every, every Christian pretty much has? You've prayed, God, take away my desire for this sin. 
Take away my desire to do this bad thing. I, I hate that I still want to do these things. Take away my desire. And for now, it's more about growing our character. But when we, when we, so he doesn't do this usually, right? Typically, he doesn't take away the desire for sin. Instead, he says, no, I'm going to make sure it's not too strong, but I want you to resist and I want you to obey me anyway. But when I go to heaven, when I stand before the presence of God, when I'm in the new creation, even better than, than that, when I'm in the new creation, my flesh is gone. And he finally takes away my desire to sin. But he does it at my request. So he's not just robot controlling me. He does it at entirely my request. Lord, please, I cannot wait to be rid of my flesh. Imagine how well Christians will all get along when we're standing there and none of us has sin nature anymore. It's going to be nice. It's a great reunion, man. There'll be friends of people who couldn't be friends. There'll be reconciliation to people who couldn't be reconciled on earth. That radical, radical change getting rid of the flesh at your own request because it's part of the deal when you turn to Christ that this is what you want. That's going to be huge. So it's not just your environment that changes. It's your awareness. It's your deep, deep in relationship with God. It's the ridding of the flesh and even the desires for sin so that you might be transformed. Um, yeah, heaven's going to be it's going to be good. Number 11, Frances Francesca says, Hi, Mike, your ministry has been a huge blessing in my life. And I, I'm very happy to hear that, Francesca. Really, it means the world to me. Um, I'm wondering how Christians should think about organ donation. Is there a clear answer in Scripture? Um, the to me the 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 clear answer in Scripture is just the idea that um, there's no greater love than this to lay down your life for a friend. Um, it's you know if a man if you see someone who's hungry you feed them. If you see someone who's hurting you help them. It's just the idea the simple idea of the charity and kindness of of humans is yeah help them in any way you can. The only area where you might have question about organ donations, yeah, but I'm giving them a piece of my body, right? Like, is, is that like cannibalism? This is where uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have the Watchtower organization, which the Jehovah's Witnesses is a, is a non-Christian group that pretends to be Christian and, um, and leads people down a, a path of deception into being submitted to their governmental rulers and part of like a, a real small... Uh, thought-controlled community. One of the things that they've done, though, is they've fully committed to the idea that organ donation is bad That uh, in the past. Things change over time. And that blood transfusions are bad because they initially thought, well, blood's like, you know, getting a blood transfusion is like eating blood and we're not allowed to eat blood. Now, I have a video on that, on blood transfusions and Jehovah's Witnesses. You guys can check that out. But they're the only Christian group that I'm aware of that has committed themselves to, to saying these things are bad. Now, they evolved on uh, organ donations. And they were like, well, it's not technically blood. But they still are opposed to blood transfusions. But they allow um, a part of the blood, which is called like, it starts with A. Ambu something. Anyway, they allow a, a particles of blood to be added, but not platelets and stuff like that. But it, it's, it's all ridiculous. And JWs die every year because of it. Every year they die. Uh, so we're not Jehovah's Witnesses and we're not submitted to their um, tyrannical and weird governmental rulers that they have in their governing body and all the stuff that they've made up about God. So I'm going to say that it's just the basic rule here is like, hey, organ donation, you're you're saving someone's life. Seems like a good idea to me. <laughs> you know, it's you're offering from your own resources to bless and help somebody else. This is just charity. This is just a high level of charity. seems like a good thing to me. All right, we'll go to question number 12. Um, an anonymous question says, 
I find that I fear hell rather than love God. Prayer and Bible reading feel like selfishly avoiding hell more than devotedly pursuing God. How do I stop my fear getting the way of my relationship with God? Hmm. I mean, you're dealing really, what, and I'll try to give you some advice here, but you're dealing with, you know, asking me to try to give you counsel for your emotional condition and your motives. And everybody seems to process these things from different perspectives. But for me, it's, if, let me, I'll give you the advice I would give myself if I was in your shoes, which may or may not help. I hope you find it helpful. If I was in your shoes, I would want to seriously ask myself, Mike, are you understanding the grace you were given? Why are you fearing hell as a Christian? Why, are you, why am I thinking that my reading of the Bible is helping me avoid hell? Maybe I'm fundamentally misunderstanding the grace of Christ on the cross. If I don't read my Bible for a month, between now and a month from now, I am not going to hell. It's not healthy. It's not good. It doesn't honor the Lord to do that. Like there's a bunch of other issues, but I don't know why I'm going to fear of hell. Maybe I'm misunderstanding the foundational nature of what it means to be in Christ. I would recommend you check out my Romans series. I taught verse by verse through the book of Romans. We deal with the gospel in incredible detail. That's one of the reasons why I picked Romans was because it's going to give this foundational, deep, deep understanding of the nature of the gospel, what it means to stand in grace. Right? So, so you say like, I'm reading my Bible and praying to selfishly avoid going to hell. I, did you think reading the Bible and praying gets you into heaven? Like this is not how it works. So, so that seems to be uh, fundamentally not appreciating. And maybe if you do appreciate the cross, maybe if you do see the grace of Christ, you will find yourself more motivated by love because the scripture tells us we love him because he first loved us. The reason you love God is not because you're such a great guy, right? Or you're such a great girl. And you're like, you just love God because you're so wonderful. Of course I love God. I'm amazing. And he's amazing. So I'm loving the amazing one because we're both amazing. It's amazing. Like This is not reality. The reality is you love God because you see that you, not just that you're heading to hell, but that you deserve it. This is the, the, the great awareness that happens when you understand the gospel. is isn't just that apart from Christ, you'll go to hell. It's that you actually deserve it. If you think your sin is really bad, you're going to love God more because you're going to realize what he did on the cross. So imagine if, if, if um, you're, you're, let's take the organ donation question we had last. If you're at a hospital and you go in, you have a, you have a cough, and as you're walking in the hospital, you pass out. And then you wake up the next day and they say, hey, you're going to be okay. You just need a few days to recover. You know, maybe a week, maybe a month to recover. And you're like, wow, great. Oh, thank you guys. Uh, thanks, I'm fine. But you thought you really only had a cough. What you didn't know is you had organ failure and you were dying. And that some random stranger donated a kidney to you at that last moment and saved your life. And so later that guy meets you and he goes, hey, were you, when you were in the hospital, I helped you out. And you thought you were in there for a cough and you were like, oh, thanks. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for helping me. That's, that's cool. Appreciate that. But you don't really appreciate him. You don't really think deeply about what he's done for you. You don't think much of the sacrifice he made. But if you look at the scar in your body where you have a new kidney and you realize that kidney saved your life and you think he has a scar too where he's missing one. He gave that for, my, for me. And he says, when, I was, when you were in the hospital, I helped you out. You then shake his hand and you give him a hug and you tell him, I can't believe it, man. You gave yourself to me. You gave a piece of yourself to me to save my life. I was in such danger. I am so grateful. Thank you. 
And you're not in any fear that you're dying now, but you have incredible gratitude for the thing he did. This is the Christian attitude when I realize that my sin means I deserve hell, but I've been given grace. He, I've been given life. When Jesus says, I helped you when you were on your way down, and you're like, oh, thanks, you know, I had a cough. But instead I look to Jesus and I go, you died for my sin that I deserve to be punished for. You suffered, you lived perfectly, you, you rose from the dead, and you did it for me. And you gave me life, and life eternal, and relationship with God. Like when you see what he's given you, I'm sorry, can you, can you not help but love God? Because he has loved you so much. This is why scripture says, we love him because he first loved us. Think about the love God's given you. Think about the treasure you have in his holy word. Get excited about those things. And it should change how you handle it, I hope. All right, number 13. This is from Friend of Isle who says, Since Jesus says that wives will be had in heaven, I'm going to be, this is an interesting question. In Matthew 19 29, why do most Christians say marriage won't exist in heaven? Um, I had this question, this, this, this verse brought up by a Mormon once, a, a former Mormon, but he's, he was not a Mormon anymore, but he still had Mormonism in his brain in many ways. And this is one of the ones I was like, there's no marriage in heaven, you know? And, um, the verse that he brought up was this one and everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my, for my namesake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Well, a hundredfold is a generic category that just means you'll get a hundred times whatever you lost. Does it mean you will get a hundred mothers? Think about this for a second, guys. Does it mean you will get a hundred mothers? Because if it if it if it means you'll they'll be here, you'll get a hundred wives. There aren't enough women in creation for everyone to get a hundred of them. <laughs> um, but no, it's just you'll receive a hundredfold. So whatever you've lost, you'll get more from me, but not more necessarily of the exact same things. Um, so I would say that. Now, there's another issue. There's two other issues. One is this. See this little footnote eight? This is because I'm reading currently New King James Version, which has the word wife there. But the current thinking on this, and it's probably accurate, is that the word wife is not in the verse. Here's it in the ESV. You could check the NIV. You could check any modern translation. Um, they're thinking that the term wife was probably not there initially. But there's more. Um, Is it in Mark? Ah, perfect. Here, Mark found it. Truly I say to you, here's another parallel passage where Jesus says it. And notice, notice what is not mentioned here. Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Notice the word wife is not there. With persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. So in this, in this time, you receive more because you're put into the family of Christ and we, 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 there's, there's a, you're a part of a community of Christians. And so you're getting more because it's an interesting way of getting more. It's through the, sake, through the sense of being belonging to this community. That's the now. And then in the end, uh, you'll get eternal life. But notice how wife is not mentioned here. Yeah, wife's not mentioned there. The one time where he specifically says you'll get more of these things, it's, it's not mentioned in that passage. That's interesting, isn't it? Um, now, there's one other passage um, which we can go to, and it's also in Matthew. And let me see if I can find it. 
Let me let me just look it up. Um, Matthew twenty-two, Matthew twenty-two, verses verse twenty-eight. Okay, here, here's where the specific question is asked that you're asking: Will there be wives in heaven? And what does it say? In the resurrection, therefore, of of oh, this. Let me. I'll just read the whole issue. Okay, the Sadducees go to ask Jesus a question. Why? Because they don't believe in the resurrection, so they think this is a skeptical challenge to it. Uh, the same day, the Sadducees came to him, uh, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question. Teacher, and they tell him a story. Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, story time. There were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. So this woman's had seven husbands. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her as a, as a wife. But Jesus answered, I love it when he, he's snarky here. You're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Those are two things that they don't understand. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. In the resurrection, they don't marry or given in marriage. Now that would imply that there's no future marriages, but it also means something else because the question that was asked. It means that if there's any current marriage in, in life, it won't carry forward into the resurrection and there will not be more people given in marriage. Jesus directly answers this question. Yeah, which makes you wonder about gender roles in the resurrection, what they will be, because they apparently are different. And I'm cool with that. They're not different now, but they will be different then. And so that's interesting to know. All right, question number 14. Fast Tumbleweed says, when I talk to some people about my mental health struggles, they suggest the cause is a spiritual issue. How do I explain that being a faithful Christian doesn't mean I can't struggle? Um, it's so weird to me that, 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 that people do believe this because like who doesn't struggle? Like who doesn't have struggles? Who doesn't feel down? Who doesn't have anxious thoughts? Anybody? Yeah, I, here's what I wanna recommend, fast, fast tumbleweed. I recommend please check out my video on depression. I did a video on depression. I give several examples in scripture of where it's okay to feel down. It's okay to have struggles like that. It's how you handle the struggle, right? That presents you with a moment where there's temptation and you don't want to yield to sin in that, but the very nature of feeling down isn't necessarily bad. Rejoicing in the Lord doesn't mean you have to smile all the time. I mean, I'm usually in a great mood when I'm doing streams, but this is partly because of what I'm doing. Like I'm not always in a perfectly positive mood. And I don't expect that I'm supposed to be. And um, it's more like how you handle it when you're down that matters. So how do you explain to people, uh, please show them my video on the topic of depression. I talk about these issues a lot, give examples in scripture. Uh, Paul talks, yeah, he says rejoice always, but he also talks about the distress that is in his heart at all times because of his worries about the church. He says be anxious for nothing, but he says he's worrying about the church all the time. So he doesn't mean you can't literally have anxiety or something's wrong with you. He just means here's how you handle that anxiety. You go about this process. Jesus, he was a man uh, of grief who was acquainted with sorrows. He, he's, he's distressed. At the end of Mark, it talks about his time in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, I am, I am um, grieved to the point of death. He was basically experiencing the emotional strain and stress that was as high as it could be. And he was sweating drops of blood, according to Luke, because of it. This is, this, this is entirely a psychologically caused 
physiological condition where you where your capillaries break and you sweat and blood comes out. This is actually a known medical fact. Some people used to mock Jesus, uh, this Luke, because he said this about Jesus. That's mythologizing. This is proof of mythological development in Scripture in one of the Gospels. And then they were like, well, you know, there's actually studies proving that this does happen. <laughs> and it would happen at exactly that kind of moment. Someone's on death row, so to speak. Um, or, you know, the night before battle for a soldier uh, that they think they're going to lose. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say please share my video on depression. Check that out. I, I hope that that helps people. Um, the issue with mental health is not Christians shouldn't have mental health problems. It's, it's this. This is my summary, right? Christians, while they may have mental health problems, they shouldn't sin because of them. That's where our focus should be in handling that in a Christian way. And in Scripture, in the Mark series, my Mark series, there's a video somewhere where I talked about this, about how um, even Jesus, even the Bible, and even the culture of the time did not think that every issue was a spiritual issue. Every sickness was a spiritual issue. They did not think this. Um, and Scripture affirms this as well. So there, if you're part of a circle who thinks that every... Every, every illness is a, is a, is a demon. Every uh, mental issue is a spiritual issue. That is, now they can be, but that's not biblical to say they all are. And so it, we need discernment and wisdom to figure these things out. Those who run around just, just saying like, oh, you know, you're depressed. Oh, you have a demon of depression. Is, um, that's not biblical to make those claims. And it might feel good because it feels like you have answers to all the issues that are going on. But if they're wrong answers, you're not helping people. All right. Speak the truth. All right, verse uh, verse 15. <laughs> Question 15. I say verse sometimes. It's just, I'm a Bible teacher. Uh, God bless you, Pastor Mike. Thank you. Um, what is an apostate? Can they come back to God? Well, th there's, there's two different ideas behind apostate. One is an apostate is somebody who has um, previously made a statement of faith that was true. So they affirmed the true core doctrines of of Christianity, right? So then you're like, oh, they're a Christian because of their proclamation and their lives seem to seem to look like they're living it. I don't know their real heart condition, but it looks like they're real. Then they've denied Christ. They've denied core truths of Christianity. So now they're apostate. They've left the faith. Another version of apostate is someone who's actually in the spiritual realm is an apostate, meaning you were actually, you didn't just say you were a Christian and look like one. You were actually saved and you've actually lost your salvation, you become apostate. I'm not, I don't comment on that. I comment on the visible side of things because I can't, I don't see people's spirits. I see them, right? Their bodies, I see their actions, and I hear their words. So personally, I, I usually only use the term to refer to the first one. Somebody who visibly made statements to say, I am a Christian, and then they made statements that denied Christianity. So therefore, I would say that's apostate. That person's apostate. Can they come back? If they put their faith in Christ, if they go, I, I trust in Jesus, I was mistaken, I welcome them back with my arms wide open. Now, if you want to have a debate, do they lose their salvation and get it back? Or were they never saved and they just finally got saved? You can debate that all day long. Either way, I'm welcoming them back. So can an apostate come back? Yeah, that, that, that's the bottom line. I'm not going to tell somebody who's far from Christ to not bother coming back, to not bother turning to Christ, to not bother believing in Jesus, confessing their sins, and yielding their lives to him. I would never say that to anyone. And anyone who does, I think, is making a huge, 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 egregious mistake. Number 16, Jonathan Allen says, Greetings, Pastor Mike. How can we explain 2 Kings 2, 23 and 24 in context? It involves Elisha and a group of young mockers who then get killed by two bears. 
Um, this is like one of those atheist favorite verses. Uh, the, the ones online, the atheists online, who, who I've encountered. Who, the, you know, Christians have like your favorite Bible verse. You're like, trust in the Lord with all your heart, not on your own understanding. Right. Um, there are especially the more vocal anti-Christian atheists that are online that have their favorite Bible verses too. They're just a different group of verses. And this is one of them. So, um, second, I went to first Kings, but it's second Kings. And this is about Elijah and the she bear and go up bald man. Um, okay. I'm going to back up a little bit. No, I'm not here. We are verse 23. Uh, he went up from there to Bethel and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him saying, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. And he turned around and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And, the, and two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. So um, here he goes up, uh, Elijah goes up and he's heading up there for, you know, in the service of God. And he gets mocked by people from a lo the local city. And okay, let's for a second, just, just put on the shelf. I'll bring it off the shelf in a moment, but put on the shelf the age of these, of these boys. Okay, how old are they? Let's put that on the shelf for a moment. But let's just talk about what happened. He is a uh, a prophet of God on a religious mission. When they say, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head, um, they're mocking him with his baldness, uh, baldness being, um, having having a, a much greater insult nature in their ancient culture and in the Hebrew than what we're seeing in English here. So it's really significant. The go up part might be related. This is interesting. Um might be related to spiritual claims about which locations in Israel were, were more spiritual than others. And I, I can't present you the research on this. There was a scholar, I think it was James Bejon, who wrote a paper on this. And you can look it up online, uh, B-E-J-O-N, Bejon, James Bejon. And he works for Tyndale. And he'd written a, a paper on this about this go up phrase. And if I remember correctly, the bottom line was the phrase go up, you bald head. And forgive me if I'm wrong, James. It's, it was like a year ago when I read your paper. But what it implied is the idea that um, they were making a spiritual claim that that you know against Yahweh, against against God, and because Elijah is the prophet of God, they're mocking him. So it's a spiritual claim about competing spiritual locations in Israel. And you know, Jerusalem, you always go up to Jerusalem. Here, it's about going up to some other location. And there was something about that that was pretty interesting. Um, but let's talk here then. Okay. So, so this was spiritual mockery and blasphemy in the land of Israel who is covenanted with God. And the covenant is you're my people. You, you will follow me or there will be consequences, right? This is not the same as God's arrangement with everybody else in the world. It's with Israel in particular. So they're mocking the God who their, their fathers had covenanted with. They're ridiculing his prophet. This is not just, you called someone bald and you got mauled. <laughs> It's not that. Um, so how old are they? Um, here in the ESV, it says some small boys came out. Then later uses the same term to describe these in the, in the Hebrew. I've looked into this before. So use the same term to describe them. And here they're called the boys. Uh, let me show you a couple other translations just so you can see the internal discussion that translations are having about this issue. Um, in the New King James, it says some youths came out from the city. All right. And then they're also called youths again. The NIV would put it as 
<clears throat> some boys came out. Now, we have to recognize that um, it's not, obviously, it's not cool to just say, oh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to say it's a translation issue and then run the other way. But there are times where translation issues are very relevant and valid. Here is one of those times. This term for boys, <clears throat> has it pulls double duty. And we have some words like this in English, like kid. Um, sometimes kid is meant to refer to a young person, and other times it's being refer it's referring to someone who's older, but who's acting immature, and you want to be disrespectful to them, so you call them a kid. Okay, kid. You get that? Now, <clears throat> dictionary-wise, kid is 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 going to refer to a young person, but also refers to other things. Now, in the... In the book of Kings, the books of Kings, we have the same word used again of an adult male, and it's being used specifically to say that he's immature. I, I wonder if I could, I, I guess I won't, I won't dig up the passage, but it's when Solomon is being appointed as king, and he talks about it, and David, I think it's David talking about Solomon, how he's going to become king, and, and, you know, I think it's David's prayer and talking about Solomon, where he says, and he uses the same exact Hebrew word, to describe him that he's like a little boy or a, or, a, or a youth. But he was not a child at the time. He was not like a six-year-old, right? Like he was, he was an adult. But here, because of the weight of the, and this is the theme with Solomon becoming king, the weight of the kingdom upon his shoulders is so much. And he's aware and he's like, God, give me wisdom. I don't have the wisdom. I'm just, I'm just a little kid. I don't have the wisdom to guide and lead and decide things for, for your great people. And so that's the theme of Solomon being installed. And it's in the same author, First and Second Kings. It's in the same setting. Isn't that interesting? And <clears throat> Solomon comes in and he's called the same thing. I think there's a there's good room for thinking here. And this is my opinion. And I'm not alone in this. This is I'm not the only one who thinks this. That these 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 kids were young, probably. They may have been teenagers, but they weren't children. Um, and if you start to realize how irrational this looks. Imagine this. It's like a group of like six-year-olds, 42 six-year-olds all running out of the town. Have you ever seen mobs of six-year-olds? Like, no, they, they don't exist. <laughs> they don't have six-year-old mobs. What we do have is mobs of teenagers and young people full of, you know, spit and vinegar, as it was, going around and echoing the, the very errors that are going on amongst their parents and in their culture as they mock the prophet of God. And so it's probably a young gang who's mocking, spiritually mocking, and, and they're, they're um, being then uh, mauled by these bears. That, that's how I understand the passage. At that point, I don't think there's anything to defend. I think a teenager can suffer for, for these kinds of egregious sins um, at the will of God. And I don't really have a problem with that. Um, some people do, but I think the problem is that they have a problem with that. That's, oh, sorry, guys. That's a different discussion. All right, let's go to question number 17. Joshua Bolton says, should biblically immoral mean illegal? Surely if sin harms the community, then all legal sin harms society and should be against the law. I mean, I have a, I have a, a significant problems with that is that it requires, among other things, us to do something that the, the Old Testament didn't even do, even when God gave them laws. It, everything that was immoral wasn't illegal. Not everything. But also does more than that. It it requires us to have a, as Christians, to have a mandate that we're not given in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, we're not given a mandate to reshape the laws of our society. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't try to, especially at certain points. But we're not primarily 
given a mandate to go into and change the governments. Although I want Christians in government and I do want them to change the government, don't get me wrong. But if I take your, this rule, Joshua, that biblically immoral should be illegal, therefore Christians, one of our important things is wherever we go, we create laws against all sin. Is I don't, I don't see that anywhere in scripture. Either in the Old Testament when there was a, a government, a holy government, or the New Testament where we have a people, not a government, who are going into every government and they're just bringing holiness. Um, the other issue that I'll add to this is that, the, the, well, on top of the problem, there's no mandate to do it in Scripture. There's no example of doing it in Scripture. Is that um, uh, there are sins that it would just be extremely hard to make illegal. Like Jesus says, if you look at a woman with, with to lust after her, you've committed adultery. Now, you can make pornography illegal, and that would probably be a good thing, I imagine. Um, <laughs> but... You can't stop lusting. How would I do that? How, if you make a law that it's, it's illegal to lust after a woman, how do you enforce this law? How do you determine someone's done it? What penalty do you give them for doing it? So obviously not all sin can be brought into laws and made illegal. But should we promote good and holy laws? Yes, it's a requirement of government, but I think we have other ways of establishing what those laws are and not just it's a sin, therefore it should be illegal. That's not enough by itself to justify lawmaking. We have to ask if the government has a mandate from God to enforce this, the illegality of that particular behavior. And if the answer there is yes, then I think that we need to make a law about it. <clears throat> uh, number 18, this is Giselle R. who says, I'm worried about uh, that being an introvert is keeping me from congregating in the church. Does this mean that I'm truly not saved? Where's the joy that I'm supposed to have in the Lord? Please help. Well, Giselle, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, my answer is totally insufficient for you. The last question you ask, where's the joy I'm supposed to have in the Lord? This is a much bigger and broader issue that would take pastoral or, or at least a godly Christian in your life sitting down with you. And I beg you, here's my advice. You want my advice? I beg you to open up to a godly believer you know. I don't care if they're a pastor. To a godly believer you know. Open up to them and tell them with no filter, the things that are going on in your heart and life. Find the wisest, older, godly Christian you can who can walk with you through this stuff and help you. That will help you answer this question. I, I really believe it. Um, you say you're worried that being an introvert is keeping you from congregating in the church. Well, if you're worried, then that probably is true. Um, uh, the, one, the one danger I'll throw out for introverts is that discovering you're an introvert can turn into you saying, and if I don't like it, and if I feel like it's not not good for my sense of uh, you know self and anxiety and all that. I'm just not going to do it. That's a danger as an introvert. Life is absolutely chock full of doing a bunch of stuff you don't feel like doing, and that you 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 know I I go to church and I feel so drained. Oh, I just talked to like ten people and I feel so drained. And it's it's like I would I would just do it anyway and then work on trying to make sure that in those react in those social interactions you're not doing things that increase your own anxiety. You know, you want to try to increase your tolerance for that stuff. If you do, as an introvert, decide to just isolate, you will only become more intolerant of public gatherings, more intolerant of church, more intolerant, and it's not helpful. Um, I'm, let me give you one verse on this. Proverbs 18, verse 1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Introvert. Now, do all introverts isolate themselves? Absolutely not. But when we say introvert, we sometimes mean somebody who 
would, would like to isolate themselves more. <laughs> and so it can be an increased temptation for you. Now, you might think I'm an extrovert, but I, I'm not. Um, and I'm very happy to be more and more in my bubble. And I feel compelled to reach out more and more and be involved more and more. And, and I feel like there's moral and godly reasons why I should push outside of the bubble. And I think that that is a, a godly way to behave. But watch out for Proverbs 18.1. It, it, it can be very dangerous to feed intro, introverted tendencies. It can be very dangerous. doesn't mean you got to be a social butterfly. That's not what I'm suggesting. Just do good things because they're good and build up your tolerance for it more and more. But if you isolate, it, it'll get worse. Um, so yeah, does this all this mean you're not saved? No, None, nothing I've said has anything to do with you not being saved. You trust in Jesus Christ. You really trust in Christ. You, you yield your life to Christ is, is the evidence that you meant it, right? It doesn't make you saved, but it's the evidence that you seem to be genuine. Those are the things I would look at. But please get some help. Talk to someone about these issues. Giselle, I share all everything I share with you, some hard things. I share them in love, and I hope you find them helpful. A lot of other people you know wouldn't have the courage to tell you some of the stuff I just said, and I hope it helps. So 19, Julia Sinekop says in Job 32, verses 7 through 9, the Lord tells Job's three friends to sacrifice burnt offerings because they haven't spoken truth. But the Lord didn't mention Elihu. Does that mean that Elihu was correct in his speech? So Julia, I think so. Um, I, I, I affirm that interpretation. I think that that seems implied. Job is this, you know, for those who don't know, Job is this debate. It, it, you know, okay, the first chapter is the destruction of Job and his family, and it's just terrible. And then, then on, it's a debate between Job and his three buddies. His three buddies go back and forth, back and forth. They all take turns. And then towards the end of the book, Elihu, this young guy, steps up and he's like, you know, I thought age should speak before, or before, uh, before youth. And so I just sat and listened. I haven't said anything. But I have some things to tell you all. And he kind of rebukes everybody. You're all being wrong. And, and, and he lifts up the glory of God. And then God comes and he rebukes Job and Job's friends. And like you said, requires sacrifices on their behalf. Doesn't say any rebuke to Elihu. What it means is that when you're interpreting the book of Job, the most reliable parts are at the end of the book. I should say reliable. That's a scary word because I don't mean it that way. Um, Job chapter 1, that's just what happened. Job chapters 1 through 30-something before Elihu starts talking. This is people debating who God rebukes, meaning that there will be a mixture of truth and falsity throughout what they say. So you have to be very careful as you read it. What you're really understanding is humans... As they go through grief and processing difficult times, you're understanding how they process it. You're not necessarily getting perfect truth. It's piecemeal. Elihu and God, at the end of the book, what they say is, is something you can, you can lean on more heavily. You can more consistently take it as just plain, that was, that was right. It's not just recording someone's thoughts. It's recording thoughts that were correct. Yeah, I think that's a good perspective. Last question for today. This is from Old Things Pass Away, All Becomes New, who asks, can someone be saved without affirming certain correct propositions? If someone holds a belief that is heretical to believe it would prevent salvation, but they are ignorant, are they saved? Um, if they hold a belief that's heretical, but they're ignorant, are they saved? Um, I imagine most heretics are ignorant. This is, this is a really sad reality. I think that most people who have false beliefs have them sincerely. 
So there's very few people who are like, I reject the Trinity, even though I know it's true. Like, nobody says that. They all say, like, I reject the Trinity because I think it's really false. So pretty much every heretic is ignorant. So does ignorant of the truth of a thing. So does ignorance save you from the consequences of the false things you're believing and proclaiming about God? And I think the answer is going to be no. Um, ignorance can will change the, the degree of judgment you receive. Jesus says the one who did wrong, uh, knowing it, will be beaten with many stripes. This is an analogy of judgment. And the one who did wrong but didn't know it will be beaten with few. Meaning there's judgment on both sides. But the degree of the judgment is based upon the, the knowledge the person had. But then you have to throw another monkey wrench into this equation. Because someone who rejects, say, the, the deity of Christ, they might be fully convinced they're right about it. But maybe they got convinced because they've sinned, hardened their hearts, and become darkened in their, in their thinking. Meaning that their ignorance is not a sign of innocence. It's a sign of rebellion against God. And so sometimes ignorance is, oh, you really just didn't know any better, and so your punishment's less. Other times ignorance is, oh, you, you rejected the light, so you've embraced the dark, and part of God's judgment on you is this ignorance. And so, I, I mean, I leave it to God to judge all the people and all of us for our lives, but I don't think ignorance matters that much. Right? That, that person's theology is horribly wrong, man. They teach that Jesus was a created being and that, uh, that he's not the only way to salvation. Yeah, but man, they really are sincere. They really believe it. Like, so? Like, sincerity is just not that important. Um, <laughs> I'm saying a lot of conf, uh, controversial things in our current culture, but I think it's super important. Sincerity is necessary, but it is not sufficient for, for you being a, a good person or, or a person who has good beliefs. Your sincerity is important because you don't want to have an insincere person believing true things. You want to have sincere, but it's not enough. It's just not enough. It's kind of like I have a heart and my heart's super important, but so are my lungs. And so my sincerity's there. My heart's pumping. It's there. But your lungs are missing because your doctrine's wrong. So, and people are like, well, Mike, you're just saying that Christianity is just a list of doctrines. Well, no, that's just, that's just a pejorative way of saying you need to believe true things about the living God. If I'm going to have a relationship with God, I have to, like, imagine if I said, you need a relationship with your wife, Mike, but you don't have to believe true things about her. Like, that's, that's weird. That's nonsense. You know, this is the heart without the lungs kind of thing. My, my wife, I need to know what she looks like. I need to know who she is. I got to know some things about her. And the moment I lose that knowledge, I no longer have a relationship with her. I have a pretend relationship with a false version of her. So doctrine is relational. Because right beliefs about God is beliefs about the God you have a relationship with. Wrong beliefs about God is turns into eventually creating a false God that is a substitute for the true God. So it's a type of spiritual adultery. So doctrine's not opposed to relationship with God. Doctrine is what helps establish relationship with God. So all that to say, um, can someone be saved without affirming certain proposition, correct propositions? No, there definitely are some correct propositions that would... If I don't affirm these, I kill my relationship with my wife. I start describing her as like a six, six and a half foot tall, uh, you know, uh, Mexican lady who juggles and lives in Canada. Like all of a sudden, I'm not even like I'm not. I don't. There's no relationship with my wife anymore, right? Because I, I have this imaginary thing with this juggler that doesn't exist. <laughs> and so it's the same thing with God. The moment you start 
denying essential attributes of God doctrinally, you're killing your relationship with him. I think that it's a big deal. All right, y'all, um, I'm bringing back prayer at the end of my video. So we're going to pray right now, and I'm going to ask for uh, the Lord to guide us and bless us, and you may join in uh, if you'd like. Um, Lord, we thank you for this time together uh, to just go deeper into your word and deeper into really taking hard questions and throwing them at the Bible to see what kind of clarity we can get, and we're thankful for that. We pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom in this world, that we would have the courage to stand strong and speak truth, but to do it without causing unnecessary offense because of our bad attitudes or because we sin um, because we're being drawn into it because of others who are sinning. We, we pray, Lord, that we'd be light to the world and that we would do it for the glory of Christ. We ask, God, that you'd remind us to set our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down now at the right hand of God. We pray that we would be those who look to Jesus, who lived for that eternal glory, that we would then be light to the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much for joining. And I will see you Monday. We're going to deal with a, a meme. A You know what? Let me show it to you real quick. Um, oh, can I? Can I? Is it possible? Can it be done? Um, maybe. <laughs> so uh, with my new computer setup, I'm going to show it to you guys. So with my new computer setup, things are, I, I got a new computer and I got new sound stuff, which I'm experimenting with. Sorry if you guys heard crackling today. As I'm getting this set up, um, it um, it's I'm gonna try to have it fixed hopefully by Monday. Not really sure why it's there, but it's there. Um, so Monday I'm doing a video on this this colonizer Jesus meme. I'm gonna show you guys the meme right now. Put it on the screen for you. That was what I had to dig up. This is the colonizer Jesus meme. Um, <laughs> So it's colonizer Jesus versus historical Jesus. I'm going to walk through each each of these points right here and we'll try to like get at the real Jesus because I'll tell you what, neither of these is right. <laughs> and um and I think it gives us a great opportunity to genuinely and accurately consider the truth of who Jesus is. He's he's not meme Jesus. Like the people just want a meme Jesus. Jesus wants us to believe in the true living uh God with us. There's there's more to him than this little bullet point list thing going on. All right. So we'll see you guys uh, on Monday, hopefully. And um, yeah, keep your eyes on him.